and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. I am super excited for the Land Rover Kentucky three-day event this week. It'll be well underway by the time you listen to this podcast and I will be glued to the live stream as I imagine many of you will too. This week on the podcast, we welcome Annalie Drummond-Hay. Annalie won the first Burley on Merlion Monarch and went on to show jump at the very top level with this incredible horse. I knew he was special when I bought him, but I didn't realise he had this amazing talent. He just, um, he took your breath away. I'll be speaking to our news team about a big move for a special show, importing semen post-Brexit and an unusual doping case. Finally, we'll be joined by two vets, led this week by the Royal Veterinary College's Andy Fisk-Jackson, to delve into all you need to know about CT scans. CT remains um, the gold standard. Quite simply, um, three-dimensional x-rays and is very, very effective. So that's enough from me. Do up your throat lash and let's get going. Hi, I'm Martha Terry, Features Editor at Horse and Hound, and I'm delighted to introduce this week's guest. She was the winner of the very first Burley Horse Trials, won Babington before switching to top-class show jumping on the same horse that had had such success eventing, merely a monarch. She is, of course, Annalie Dramatay, all the way from South Africa. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, Annalie. Thanks, Martha. Now, Annalie, you're here with us because we're celebrating your great horse, merely a monarch, in our Legends of the Sport series this week. It's so rare for a horse to excel at top level in two disciplines as he did. Can you tell us something about what made him so versatile? I was just very lucky to have Merlion Monarch. I, I advertised that I wanted a young potential event horse in Horse and Hound. And I had umpteen answers, but none of them really fitted the bill. And after a few months, I still hadn't bought a horse. And I happened to have a photograph of Merlion Monarch, which the readers had sent me. And in my own stupidity or luck, as it may happen, mm-hmm. um, I lost the photo and then suddenly I found it again and I look at it again and I realised why I'd sort of put it as a no good pile because he was only two and a half and I didn't want such a young horse. But of course, after six months, he was now three, nearly three. And I saw that he was stabled very close to um, Harwood where I was going to ride. And so I, I went and had a look at him, and I, just from the moment I saw him galloping around in a field, he was just magnificent. He had that look of eagles about him, and I just thought, no, I've got to have him. He was a bit expensive, which I could ill afford, but I, once I decided that I wanted him, I sort of scrimped and scrounged and managed to pay for him, and that was the start of him. And he was a bit naughty, though, wasn't he, to start with? Didn't he have a few tricks up his sleeve? Not only to start with, he was naughty all, all through his life, but <laughs> <laughs> in the beginning, he, I think they tried to, well, he was sold as having been broken in, but actually he'd learned to butt people off. And he, he had this enormous power. And when he did buck, his buck was as bad as his jump, or as good as his jump. <laughs> and I used to go flying and um, he was quite, um, he was very strong-willed and he wouldn't, if he didn't want to go through something, particularly wet patches or we had a stream at, at home in Scotland and I used to 
ride the horses through it. Well, there's no way she would do it. So I, I, I got quite, I, I don't know whether I was nervous. I suppose I was protected to myself because he would buck me off. So I, I started driving him on long reins through these funny places. And he would buck and kick and, and moan. But I didn't mind if I was standing on the ground what he did. And somehow or other, I sort of, we, we came to an agreement that he had to do what he's told. But it took some time and effort. Do you think there, there's an element that when a horse is that difficult, you have that much of a battle that can make them brilliant? Do you like that in a horse? I don't like it at all nowadays. But um, I do think there probably is uh, some merit in that because... He had a character. He certainly wasn't a pushover. Mm. And uh, I, I think that probably bending the character to help you rather than be against you is, is fantastic. But, uh, you know, because I'd spent all of £300 on him, I couldn't afford for it to go wrong. <laughs> so he had to do it. And he had to do what I was told. And in a funny sort of way, it probably was the making of him. Mm. And I had to, um, you know, he just had to do it. He, uh, he, he cost me a lot of money and I, I couldn't afford to. And I, I wasn't my style anyway. I always, I always sort of somehow or other came out in the end. Perseverance. Um, and you competed him, Monarch, in show jumping and eventing, but he could have even had a dressage career or a racing career, couldn't he? Well, he was so talented. Of course, I, I knew he was special when I bought him, but I didn't realise he had this amazing talent. And, of course, I didn't know that he had this amazing jump. Um, and for the moment he started jumping, he used to give the most incredible feeling. And, of course, he had a wonderful move, but he had a, just a trot to die for. And um, he, he was very abnormal. And through, I, I sort of went through different disciplines in his career. I did pure dressage. He never got beaten in dressage, funnily enough, wow. in anything um, in dressage, whether it was pure dressage or in eventing. Mm. He never got beaten in eventing. And then I'd never won badminton. I'd ridden there a few times. But obviously I'd, I'd been second and third or whatever. I can't remember. But I, I dearly wanted to win it. And he, quali- he I rode him actually at, at the first Burley, but he was only six and he wasn't really supposed to go to it. But I had a, a last minute sort of um, decision to ride him. Mm-hmm. And it was a dreadfully difficult course. Every single horse had fallen on the cross country and I was the last one to go. And I was really nervous about this young, precious six-year-old and hurting him. So I, I rode him with a lot of care around the course. And anyway, he, um, he did jump clear. And he won by a huge margin. Mm. And so as a result of that, I felt more confident when I rode him at badminton. And actually, he really won badminton terribly easily. He won the dressage by a big margin. I can't remember what it was, but a much bigger margin than normal. Because he was, he was just so talented. Mm. He just, he just, um, he took your breath away. And of course, that attracted buyers who, always came to him like bees to a honeypot to buy him. And I was brought up without money. And of course, it was terribly tempting to have these large sums of money offered for him. But I resisted because I just somehow or other, I just didn't want to let, let go of this precious thing. Yeah. So I hung on. <laughs> I lived on, lived on bread and water, but we hung on. 
Um, and I know he was shortlisted for the Olympics in dressage, show jumping and eventing, but wasn't there also an occasion where a famous racehorse trainer had his eye on him? Well, it was, ironically. I, I needed to give him a final gallop um, before badminton. And my next-door neighbour was had a, a big training stable, and I asked if I could use his gallop. And he said, well, you can use the gallop, but sadly it's not allowed for anyone other than a proper jockey to ride the horse. So I thought, well, it doesn't really matter because I just need to clear his wind and he didn't have to be very technically ridden. So I agreed to that. And so when I arrived at the gallop, the trainer, I could see he had a bit of a funny look in his eye. He said, um, I'm going to let your horse gallop up with Flame Gun, who happened to be the top superstar two-mile chaser of his time. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, he's either trying to take the mickey out of me or what, I don't know. So, I mean, I didn't care really. So Monarch and Flame Gun, they did about a mile and a half, I think, on that training gallop. And they galloped around a big circle and then up the straight, which was a bit uphill. And when the two of them came past side by side, suddenly Monarch just left Flame Gun standing. <laughs> I mean, my legs. And the trainer turned to me and said, my God, what is this horse? I've got to have it. Well, of course, I didn't. Yeah. And actually, he had fell pony blood, didn't he? I think he's either great-grandmother. It must have been his great-grandmother, I think, was a fell pony. Um, and then, of course, he had thoroughbreds coming in that way. Yeah. So he, he, I think he was 15th, 16th or 7th, 8th. I'm not absolutely sure. But he, he looked like a thoroughbred. But... Almost better, if I can say it, um, because he was a slightly more substantial, certainly than the majority of thoroughbreds. And he just, he, he had a lot of substance. He was big, he was 17 hands. He had an amazing shoulder, he had an amazing back end. Mm. And he just had this uh, unbelievable movement and a lovely, lovely head, but naughty. <laughs> Um, so we're at this stage, we would be looking forward to badminton at this time of year. Sadly, it's cancelled. Um, for you personally, how much of a pinnacle was that? You were just about to change your horse to show jumping, but you wanted to win badminton. How, how were the nerves before that, that event? Well, I, I had show jumped him sort of during his five and, well, four, five and six year old. And he was actually an A-grade jumper by the time he won badminton. Um, but I was very nervous of hurting him because I knew that he was so special. And obviously badminton is a little bit risky for a horse that's starting to become more and more special. But I did want to win it and uh, I knew that he could. I mean, it, it sounds big-headed, but he was so supreme that he, he really was cantering when the rest were galloping. And he, he won it, I don't know, by a huge margin. I haven't checked up, but it was a, I think it was a record margin. You know, he won the dressage so easily and he coasted around the cross country, really only cantering, but he, he didn't have any penalty points for not going fast enough and things. Everything was so easy for him. Amazing. And this was a horse who wouldn't go into water two years before. Well, sure. We had that little discussion about it, but he decided <laughs> to do what I told him. Brilliant. Pot hunting around badminton, I like it. He was a bit, that's exactly it. He was sort of, sounds very big-headed, but I don't mean it that way at all. <laughs> um, and you've, you've reached the top of two disciplines, obviously. You've trained hundreds of riders. What have been the biggest changes you've seen in terms of horsemanship over the years? 
Um, I think people are much more educated nowadays. And I don't think it's totally for the better. And look, I think 90% is for the better, but there's a slight part of it where I think sometimes the horses have been over-drilled and over-schooled and they have become a little bit robotic and not thinking for themselves. So when these slightly less experienced riders, and I don't mean them, they're not good, but maybe they haven't had the experience of somebody that's oldest, particularly sort of younger riders, um, they can get on these robotic horses. And if they come in a bit wrong to a jump, the robot horse doesn't think for itself the horses that maybe I learned on because they had to look after themselves more. And they, I think these horrible uh, rotational falls that one's seeing, I think it's, in my opinion, it's possibly because the horse is not allowed to think of themselves so much today as they used to be when I was doing it and we sort of taught to dominate our horses perhaps to the same degree. Yeah. So I think that there is an element of it not being such a good idea. Yeah, fascinating. Um, and you've been living in South Africa for quite a long while now. And like the UK, um, you've had your share of lockdowns. Um, but I gather until lockdown, you were still competing. Can you tell me a bit about your horse and what you do with him? Uh, well, I've got a lovely boy <coughs> who I call Apollo. I bought him when he was two in Holland. And I brought him out here. I, I rode him for a couple of years. I was, I was actually in Holland for a few years. And I brought him back to South Africa with me. He was only two, uh, I think he was four and a half or five. I, I hadn't ridden, I think I'd ridden him at one show in Holland. And he, um, he wasn't, he was a lovely boy when I bought him. I'm not that he still isn't, but he wasn't very big when I bought him. But he, I think it was the sun in South Africa. He just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And he's now 18 hands. Wow. But he doesn't, he doesn't ride like an elephant. He's terribly balanced and does beautiful changes and lovely extended trots. And he's terribly careful and powerful jumper. Um, in fact, he's much better than I am. <laughs> um, I, but he has to put up with me. But I don't, I'm not very brave now. I don't jump higher than 120. But he, when we go to shows, he's nearly always in the first three. He's very quick at turning, quicker than me. And he just, he has maybe one fence down a year. <laughs> the sad thing is, Apollo is going to be 21 next month. But he and I, we don't talk about our age. <laughs> That's brilliant. And what motivates you to, to keep riding? Well, I've never stopped. So somehow it's like cleaning my teeth. <laughs> it just sort of happens. And um, mind you, with the lockdown, I've sort of started getting a bit stiff and out of out of practice but anyway that's the same for everybody but I, I i've never stopped and touch wood i've never i've never really had a bad accident and um I, it's just sort of been an ongoing thing so I, I suppose i must be very lucky i i, I mean i actually never had a fall of venting and i think i rode 40 horses in in all the one day in three day events that's a phenomenal statistic to have ridden that many horses without falling. And finally, you've been in South Africa a while. Are, are we likely to see you back at all in the UK once restrictions lift and you're able to come over? Well, I, I just read in the paper today that we're not allowed to leave because of our 
I don't know. I think our our COVID thing is getting better, but I mean, it'd be lovely to come back, but somehow or other we're all locked up in prison and um, <laughs> we have to do what we're told, don't we? <laughs> Perhaps we might see you at badminton next year? Well, that's, that's really lovely. I mean, I always loved being at badminton. I was devastated when badminton was cancelled this year. Not that I was going, but... It was so sad, but, and, you know, badminton was cancelled last year as well. Mm. So it's sort of not the first time, but I, it certainly, thank God, it would never cancel when I was competing. <laughs> thank you so much, Annalie. It's been wonderful to have you on the podcast and we look forward, hopefully, to seeing you next year. Oh, good, Martha. Well, thank you for your questions. See you soon. <laughs> So I'm joined today by my three colleagues from the Horse and Hound News Desk. First of all, it's hello to our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you, Eleanor? Morning. All good. Yeah, thank you. Been to a show this weekend and how nice is it just to be able to say that? Um, but then at the moment, my lorry's gone in for its dreaded plating. So <laughs> I had the call of the, the mechanic ringing out going, I'm just ringing about your lorry. And you're like, mm-hmm, I'll sit down. Oh, <laughs> and no. He, no. And then he said, actually, it's not too bad in a really surprised voice. <laughs> so, fingers crossed. <laughs> oh, the the bill is going to be in the in the, in the two or three figures, not in the four figures. Hopefully, oh, fingers crossed. <laughs> well, we also have with us our senior news writer Lucy Elder. Uh, how are things going with you, Lucy? Yes, good. Thank you, Pippa. I've been out for a jumping lesson. It's probably about the first time I've left the floor over collar poles, certainly in six months. <laughs> um, so that was really good fun. I've been to a pub beer garden. I'm feeling great actually. So yeah, how about you? Yeah, also good, thank you. I did some dressage on Saturday, attempted some dressage with the uh, with the pony and he was good and I've got a dressage lesson this weekend. So yeah, starting to uh, to get back into it. Got a dressage competition entered in a couple of months and uh, or a couple of weeks actually and an eventing practice day at the end of May, which I think will be the closest I get to eventing for a few months just because of various factors. But looking forward to, to getting out and about, as you say, it's really nice to, to be able to do some more things. And we also have with us Becky Murray, our news writer. How are you, Becky? I'm well, thank you. Not been up to a huge amount. I've just been working away with Chloe and appreciating the better weather, actually. So um, I'm hoping to get a couple of lessons booked in the diary. And I'm still trying to groom winter coats out of my Shetland ponies. The hair just keeps coming. So, yeah, they're all keeping me very busy. Well, yeah, I think I think the thing with ponies is that you could be grooming that hair out till about June. It's just non-stop, isn't it? <laughs> I saw some jackdaws last year. We've got a little old Welsh mare as a companion and they cut out the middleman and just perched on her back and pulled the hair out themselves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor pony. Yeah, I mean, Alfie, uh, the Connemara that I showed my mum, is clipped out. So he's only got a saddle patch and his legs on. But it's amazing how much white hair you can get just from a saddle patch and legs. <laughs> it just seems to be everywhere. But uh, hey ho, it's spring. We're not complaining, and the sun is shining. So we're going to look at the uh, the serious news. And Eleanor, I'm going to start with you today. We have heard some news this week about Olympia, the much loved London International Horse Show. What can you share with us that's new at Olympia? 
Yeah, so it's moving. Uh, it's going to the Excel Centre, which is absolutely massive. And um, it's all to do with, as we have reported before, there's, there's re redevelopment work going on at the actual West London venue. And because of the coronavirus pandemic, there weren't, you know, there were hardly any events last year. So the building works accelerated. And that means it will be at a stage where use will be restricted in December when obviously Olympia runs. So it's sad that uh, that it's going away from Olympia. Is that for a year only or is it possibly a permanent move? Well, I spoke to the event director, Simon Brooks-Ward, uh, and, and he said that nothing is being ruled out when it comes to the show's future. And they've said, you know, Olympia certainly keeps itself in our hearts and minds, but it's going to the Excel and they're, they're really excited about that. He says he understands as well as anyone that people love the Grand Hall and, you know, it's all the Olympia thing is so special. But he is saying, you know, having he's gone round the Excel and he's saying it's not only physically what they can do there, but that the attitude from everyone there is just you know what can we do to help you put on an excellent horse show and he says all the things that everyone loves about olympia you know the top class jumping dressage and driving christmas entertainment and father christmas at the end will all be there Mm. And what sort of things will be different at Excel? It's quite a different venue to what we're used to. Yes, um, the access will be uh, a lot better for many people. So riders coming from continental Europe will just be able to come straight up the motorway. Um, so we spoke to Laura Rennick, the show jumper, who, who I hadn't realised that you, um, at the other, you know, the actual Olympia venue, you had to unload your horses and then go off and park the lorry elsewhere. Whereas here they'll be parking on site. They've um, said they will open up an area. So if it's wet, the horses can be un unloaded loaded at undercover um, very nearby to the London City Airport so he, yeah they're hoping the access will be better in terms of visitors going to the show the plan is to make the warm-up area open for people to watch all the time like they have at other shows and they there will be far fewer seats with a with a restricted view so sounds really exciting. Mm, it's really interesting because obviously sort of part of the charm of, of traditional Olympia is the way that everything is crammed into that quite small space. And Olympia is Christmas to me. You know, we yeah. always used to go when I was a kid with my mum and my gran. And I live quite local to uh, to that traditional venue now. So um, it will be a big change. But it does sound like there could be some advantages to moving to the Excel for, for a year or, or possibly longer. It'll be, And I think people are just glad that the shows are going yeah. ahead at the moment, aren't they, Eleanor, wherever they are? Yeah, I mean, it's not Christmas without Olympia, is it? So just so pleased that it's going to go ahead. Yeah, we will definitely look forward to that after not having any Olympia last year. Thank you, Eleanor. Becky, I'm coming to you now. And I feel like you've embarked on some kind of Brexit series, much like Lucy did earlier this year. I'm glad you're having to share the pain. What have you been looking at this week? Yes, Brexit, the gift that keeps on giving. Um, well, I've been looking more at stud books and an important deadline that is going to have an effect on competition and breeding horses. So basically, following Brexit and under EU legislation, both the UK and EU countries need to apply to each other for something called third country status and also third country stud book status. Now, this is in order to continue trading breeding animals and products such as embryos and semen. Now, the UK has applied and was granted this third country status in December and all our stud books as well. But the deadline for EU countries to apply to Britain is on the 30th of June. OK, and what would be the problem sort of in practical terms for UK breeders if the EU stud books don't put in that application? 
it could have a real big impact. Um, if an EU country has not applied, this means they cannot sell the UK these germinal products. So if you're a UK breeder and import semen from an EU country, if that particular country hasn't gained this status, then that semen cannot be imported the way it always has been. I did speak to Eva Maria Brumer, the Vice President of the World Breeding Federation, and she said this is a real big risk for British breeders here. You know, they rely on having stallions available to them from Europe. Mm, it would definitely be a big change for UK breeders if there were certain stallions they couldn't use because of because of that and, and would hold them back. And I think there are also some implications for EU bred sport horses, which are being sold into the UK, aren't there? That's right. If stud books haven't gained third country stud book status, then any horses sold will be considered as unregistered. Now, this means they're classed as having a lower health status, and that comes with its own implications of sort of higher import and export taxes. Plus, I spoke to DEFRA and they confirmed to me that unregistered horses have to meet more onerous import and export requirements, such as different blood testing and isolation. So for those competing abroad, this would add some extra uh, hoops to jump through. So some serious implications there. And let's hope that everything can get sorted out with those applications going in and, and being approved in time so that nothing is held up or, or disturbed or limits the choice of, uh, of breeders and riders in the UK. Lucy, you have been writing this week about a really interesting doping case. And this is one that sort of caught all of our attention when we talked about it in our weekly news meeting. What is the story here? So yes, Pippa, this has been an interesting one. Essentially, Hell's Kitchen, who's a racehorse trained by Harry Fry, um, was found to have arsenic above the permitted level in his system after he finished fourth in the Queen Mother Champion Chase at the 2019 Cheltenham Festival. And of course, you see arsenic, you think, goodness me, what has caused that? While it is um, present everywhere, it's you know naturally occurring in the environment, and so BHA does test to a limit, it was slightly over that. And to cut a long story short, came out the hearing was that they found the most likely cause was that the horse had been kept in a stable a bit more than he would normally have been um, due to the wet winter and things. And he'd been chewing the timber beams in that stable. And now Mr. Fry had moved into the property in 2014 and they put it down to the fact that the beams had been treated with a sort of creosote that contained arsenic as we know um, creosote used to do before that was you know before the rules changed in the mid 2000s these beams were treated with that years before Harry Fry moved into the property so it was an interesting one and it raised quite a lot of questions really about how long arsenic can stay um, stay present in in timber and old timber and and the possibility that it could cause positive tests later on. Mm. And to be clear, there's no suggestion here of any wrongdoing by Harry Fry and, and sort of the sanctions or lack of sanctions did reflect that, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. There is nothing to suggest. And in the hearing itself, they said that he cooperated fully with BHA, allowing everything conceivable to be tested. And there was actually not a single suggestion that he could have done anything further in the way of clean sport. So, um, so as you said, yes, while the horse had to be disqualified and uh, the prize money returned, they there were no sanctions for him. So obviously, you know, chewing wood isn't a unique problem. I think most people will have either known a horse or had a horse that's chewed gateposts and things like that. And so I went to the FEI and I went to um, British Equine Veterinary Association as well to, to ask them a bit about, is this something people should be should be worried about or thinking about and how on earth can 
people actually prevent this from happening in future. Mm. And what do the FEI say? Is it something that sort of our Olympic riders need to be worrying about competing under FEI rules as well as racehorse trainers? So it is a banned substance under the FEI. And actually, during the time I was writing the article, they came back and said that that week it had been discussed by the FEI list group. Um, that was the FEI veterinary director, Goran Ackerstrom, who who said that. Um, so it's possible there's we might see some changes in how it's classified. Um, I think that's slightly up in the air at the moment. And thresholds and things like that so it'll be interesting to see to see what happens from from there on and David Rendell who's chairman of the British Equine Veterinary Association's Health and Medicines Committee uh, told me after the hearing as well that the case highlights the possibility that treated timber in old stables um, may contain arsenic um, and while it's low it is you know it is possible so I think BHA, we know, only started really testing for it at the beginning of 2019. So it's interesting that Harry Fry's case was um, the March after that. So it was fairly soon after they started testing. And I haven't seen any further um, racing cases yet. But we were heard, we heard in the hearing that it's not the only one the BHA is aware of. And the panel chairman did give a warning as well at the end that it's something for people to be aware of but again I'm not sure how you can be aware of something that is you know ubiquitous it's everywhere and and uh, and quite what we're meant to do about it so I think it will be interesting to see how it develops and hopefully we'll get some sort of guidance as to as to whether this is something people should be worried about or not. Mm, I'd be interested to know whether there's anything people can do, such as sort of creosoting over with more modern mm. creosote that doesn't contain arsenic. But then it's easy for horses, if they're chewing wood, to chew through a layer of creosote, well, isn't it? Quite. And it was interesting that it was quite a series of events that um, that led to the test. So, you know, the fields were so wet that he hadn't been out. So he'd been in a stable more. So, and the amount chewed as well was again there's not a lot of information out there about how much he'd need to eat to or ingest rather to to cause a positive test and there was quite a lot of, sort of debate over that and whether the fact that he was tested straight after he'd run in the champion chase which is of course you know gonna it takes a lot of physical effort he might have been slightly dehydrated would that have you know impacted the reading slightly um it was interesting as well that they tested the wood in, in not only that horse's stable but in neighboring stable as well and they found that the level of creosote in his stable was in that bean that they tested was four times the amount in the neighboring stables so again it's had they had the person who creosoted that box just run out or has it stayed on there longer for other reasons is it going to be the same concentration in all parts of of a box it's it's quite an unknown really but hopefully hopefully we'll get to a place where we're um where there's a bit more information and understanding around it Hmm, might be more coming out of that case that we will still hear about in the future. Thank you very much, Lucy, and thank you to Becky and Eleanor for joining us today too. So now it's over to the experts for some veterinary advice. Hello and welcome to this podcast. Uh, my name is Andy Fisk-Jackson. I work at the Equine Referral Hospital at the Royal Veterinary College. And what... Um, we're going to be looking at today is uh, referral centre diagnostics. I'm also joined uh, by Rick Farr from uh, Farr and Percy. Hello, Rick. Hi, hi, Andy. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. Um, and we're just going to um, talk about uh, what happens when horses come for particular types of imaging. And I think, in particular, really, um, our advanced imaging, which often um, 
referring practitioners uh, like Rick will refer in for perhaps just an MRI or just a CT or just a bone scan. Um, and, and I think um, it's useful for perhaps our listeners to understand what happens with particularly those three advanced imaging modalities which are used in that way. I think very much so as well, because the amount of times that I've been out on the road and they've just, I've had a, occasionally some people say, well, can we just not bring the CT here? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately not. So there are definitely limitations to first opinion imaging. It's come on no end. I mean, Eve, I've only yeah. been qualified 15 years, but it is come on even since I've been qualified with regards to digital imaging and everything out in the field. But there are limitations to it. And I think that's the important thing to know that there are centers that can then progress from where we've started off in the first yeah. opinion fields. Yeah, and I'd agree with that entirely. I mean, the, the, the quality of ultrasound and um, uh, radiographs that, that we're, we're getting um, referred through, we're sent through for evaluation is, is, is improved dramatically. Um, and it's, it really is, there, there's, there lies the dilemma straight away about, you know, we don't want to leap to these expensing, expensive imaging modalities needlessly because quite often, um, you know, that the, the two-dimensional imaging, as we call it, um, X-rays and ultrasound, it actually gives you a sufficient answer. Um, but of course, one has to be prepared and, and in a timely and appropriate fashion think, actually, no, we need to go for this advanced um, modality because of um, the lack of improvement, the lack of an answer. So if we start first with, um, let's start with CT since Rick uh, mentioned it. Now CT is uh, quite simply um, three-dimensional x-rays. It's, uh, it's, it's a little bit different, but it's more or less that. So it's very, very good for bone-related abnormalities, uh, not very good for soft tissue uh, related abnormalities, so tendons and ligaments and so forth, although there's ways of making it better, but broadly speaking, um, it's the bone. And um, we tend to use it for things that stick out of the horse, basically. We can't fit a whole horse through a CT scanner, that's important to understand. Not like you or I can, or even our small animals, but we cannot, at the moment, fit a whole horse through a CT scan. There's one type of scanner in the world that does, but it, it hasn't uh, gained in popularity because of the lack of detail it gives. So the sticky out bits, essentially the head and the limbs. And we can now, um, under general anaesthesia, we can now do the neck as well. But because of the size of the hole in the scanner, that's as far as it goes. The main use of RCT scanner would be for sinuses and teeth, because it really gives us a huge advantage. Whilst x-rays have improved in detecting um, tooth infections, for example, or sinus infections and the causes of them, CT remains um, the gold standard and is very, very effective. So <clears throat> when your horse comes for, for a CT, what we uh, will do is we'll admit uh, your horse and uh, get obviously the form signed. And then we will get a catheter in, um, which we need uh, to be able to give sedation um, as when we need it without having to stick a needle in each time and disrupt uh, your horse. So the catheter will be put in. It's important to understand that the catheter is not a uh, benign uh, thing to have in your horse's neck. It's in the jugular vein. And there can be some problems with that, rarely, thankfully, but um, uh, it's not completely benign. And then your horse will um, uh, walk around and, and with head CTs, we'll do those standing. Leg CTs, we have to do those under a general anaesthetic. But a CT scan per se is quite a quick imaging modality. The CT scan itself, one scan pass only takes about 38 seconds. Um, obviously everything has to be in place, your horse has to have um, be completely still and it stands uh, on a, 
platform, if it's having a standing uh, CT, of course, uh, rests its head on the bed that uh, normally you would lie on. It's a human machine, we just go in the back of it and it rests uh, his head on or her head on the bed and then it's drawn back through the scanner um, and there's quite a lot of noise um, and it's drawn back. It's actually an um, air pump underneath the, the bed and it's all, all works very uh, smoothly and provided um, everything is uh, run smoothly and your horse doesn't move during the scan and actually one scan is enough and we, we get everything we need. Once all the images have been checked, then your horse is um, allowed to wake up um, from the sedation, led back round to the stable. And then depending on whether we're going to hang on to the horse, and that'll depend on what we what we find. Um, or if, if uh, uh, it's going to go back home, then that's great. Uh, we'll just take the catheter out uh, and discharge um, your, your horse back to you. We will then communicate the uh, findings back to um, your vet. So, and this is something that's quite important. I think it isn't always recognized. It does produce a huge number of images, which is very, very useful, of course, and that's its advantage. But equally, it takes quite a long time to look through them. Um, and of course, I have other things I'm doing with other patients, I might be in surgery. So I may not be able to look at them straight away. And what we also prefer to do, if it's an imaging only uh, referral, is to actually communicate the findings back to your vet. So we've got one line of communication. So I don't talk to you and then Rick talks to you. Um, it's much better if I talk to Rick, we discuss the best way forward and then we come up with a, uh, a good solution for what's, uh, you know, how we proceed. And I think that probably Rick, you would prefer as well. It, it definitely, definitely. That, that works very well for us. Actually a question that uh, normally I pose to clients as well. Taking heads and teeth as an example or sinuses, we can obviously take x-rays in the field. What's the benefit really of having a CT over x-rays in the field? Because there are quite a few that, that mm. can help. And actually, from a financial point of view, can be more cost effective as well. So what kind of benefits do you find they are? Well, so you may get lucky taking x-rays in the field. You may get lucky and um, you know, you'll have something which is diagnosed straight away on an x-ray and um, you will have saved yourself the trip and the expense of a CT. Now bear in mind that the RVC charges £620 um, for a CT scan um, and other centres will, you know, may charge um, a little bit more or a bit less or whatever, but all roughly about the same. Now, the benefits of CT is simply um, it's, it takes away all the superimposition you get with different structures in the head. So obviously the head's got lots of different things in it. It's got uh, all the teeth and the sinuses and so forth. And the CT is able to cope with that by sort of dismantling everything. So we look at everything individually. If we use teeth infections as, a, as an example. We can, uh, if it's got a, a tooth root infection, uh, x-rays have got about a 50% chance of picking uh, the right tooth. Whereas CT, it's, it's, it's greater than 95%. It's different figures, maybe 95, 98% chance of picking the right tooth. Now, given that the normal solution for that is to remove the tooth, you want to make sure you're removing the right tooth for sure. Otherwise, not only are you going to go through the trauma of having to remove a tooth and, and the, you know, sometimes there's difficulties with that, but also it simply won't solve the problem. And she'll be back having another tooth removed and so forth. And back in the day before CT, it wasn't unusual for a horse to have more than one tooth removed because quite simply, you know, it couldn't decide which one it was that needed removing. So for the sake of that and identifying any other contributory factors, 
then then CT is is simply invaluable um, and actually pretty cost effective compared with the other three dimensional modalities. Yeah, I, I, I happen to agree because I know from our point of view, by the time you've gone out and x-rayed, probably once then umdenard over it a bit, probably got a second opinion on the x-rays and then think, OK, we're going to have to probably leave it a week or two, go back, take another x-ray. By the time you've done all of that, you probably could have got it a lot earlier. And again, mm. prevention and cure Obviously, we want to go down the prevention route. So getting things early is likely to make things more cost effective. So I, I'm, a, I'm a great believer in sending things for CT much earlier now than, than before yeah. it. Okay, so that's a CT scan. I, I should stress one last thing and actually define what CT means. It's computed tomography, um, just in case uh, you're wondering. But um, sometimes referred to as CAT scan as well. But that's what CT is all about. Um, thanks very much for listening. Thanks to Rick. My pleasure, as always. And uh, we'll see you for the uh, next podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you both. Next week, Andy and Rick will tell us more about how your vet and an equine hospital vet work together if your horse needs specialist care. We'll be speaking to the Jinx show team following their success at the BSPS Winter Championships. And I'll be reviewing all the action from Kentucky with my colleague, Catherine Austin. Thank you for listening and please do rate, review and share the Horse and Hound podcast to help us spread the word. See you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.